You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. Christ's love 
and his light in relationship to one another in the world. And we have finally gotten to Paul's closing argument. So how does he decide what to say in his final words to this community of believers in Ephesus? My translation says, finally. That's what it says in verse 10. But a lot of people translate this as henceforth, which I love that term, or from now on. So from this point forward, because they were a community under extreme persecution. Paul is writing this from prison. And so with, we know that he is no stranger to what it means to follow Jesus and to be persecuted for following Jesus. He was not just excommunicated from his community, but he has been constantly at risk of losing his actual life. But he is so convinced of the truth of the gospel, and he has been radically transformed by Jesus, and so it's worth it. He will spend the rest of his life in prison for the sake of the gospel. So Paul's an expert in what this community is potentially experiencing or will experience in the future. He's not speaking in hypotheticals. He's about to lay out for them the crucial pieces, the crucial elements of living a life following Jesus and standing firm in the midst of ridicule and persecution and hardship. And more importantly, Paul knows that while it may seem on the surface that it's the Roman officials or it's the Jewish community or it's the outside culture that are out to destroy the church, in reality, it's God's enemy. It's Satan who's at work to scare and to discourage and to distract the followers of Jesus from living out his vision for how they are to live in the world. And Paul doesn't want this community to misidentify the enemy. He doesn't want them to miss the forest for the trees and to get sidetracked by meaningless battles and useless protections. He wrote these words in order for this community and for us today to stand firm in our pursuit of following Jesus and living out his vision for the church. And to do this, he lays out three important aspects. First, we need to identify the right enemy. Second, we have to identify the right defense and third, we have to identify the right posture. Paul is clear to point out that the first crucial element is to identify who is the actual enemy. We have a lot of potential enemies that we could identify in our world today. We have communism. We have liberalism. We have conservatism. We have far-right extremism. There's China and Russia and America. I don't know if you uh, followed what was going on in the news this week with Simone Biles, but there were a couple people that were basically accusing her of um, not going for the gold medal, and in response, then Russia was going to Russia got the gold medal, and that was basically a microcosm um, of what was happening in the world today. And. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, so we have a lot of potential enemies that we would like to define as the real problem. That's the real enemy. Another big conversation around right now is critical race theory. And there's people that say, you know, this defines all of the problems in our world. And there's people that say, no, there's no way we can let that be taught because it's the enemy. That's going to distract us. Well, both of those things are potential distractions from the true enemy. Because there are destructive forces to be found in any of the human systems and human relationships, 
All of these things have potential to go the way of destruction. They're merely symptoms of the real enemy that's at work behind the scenes to distract us from his real agenda of divisiveness and destruction. Because from the very beginning of scripture, we see Satan, who is the enemy of God. He's at work to make us question God's goodness and his love and to destroy our ability to be God's ambassadors to the birth of the world. We see him in the Garden of Genesis, the beginning of God's story, asking these questions to Eve. Did God really say you can't eat of any of that fruit? He twists these questions just enough to give us a little bit of truth while still deceiving and introducing doubt and confusion in her mind. All of a sudden, she's thinking, did God really say that? Doesn't God love me? God really loved me. Wouldn't he want good things for me? Why would he restrict things for me? He must not really love me. and He must not be who he said he is. He must not be good and trustworthy and true and loving. And in the blink of an eye, with one little question, the enemy has turned this beautiful relationship between God and his human creation into a relationship filled with distrust and disunity and brokenness. This is where it comes from. This is where we see what has happened to our world. Jesus describes Satan in this way. He was the murderer from the beginning, not holding to truth. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he's a liar. He's the father of lies. Peter describes Satan like this in 1 Peter your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. His schemes have put in place a, a sort of distrust. And there's a cosmic battle at play. But we don't have to fear because the battle has already been we don't have to wonder any longer whether God's word is true or whether he's good, whether he's faithful or whether he keeps his promises. All of these things have been decided at the cross. But we still live in the already not yet kingdom of God. The decisive victory happened at the cross, but we have yet to see the complete fulfillment of what is to come when Jesus comes and reigns. That is why we're called as his followers to participate in the mission of God in our communities and do what Paul says when he says, I rejoice in what I suffered for you and I fill it in my flesh what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, which is the church. The kingdom has come, but it's not completely fulfilled. So while we as his followers strive for justice and equality, while we strive for shalom in our communities and reconciliation and redemption and renewal, we only understand the tiniest bit of the fullness of each of these. Because the enemy is always quick to destroy where God is at work. He's always quick to destroy our pursuit of faithfulness and holiness in the kingdom of God. I think one of the major ways that Satan tempts us and one of his major schemes is to make us believe that he doesn't exist at all. That all of those things that I mentioned before, that they are all true systems and that we just have to live with them. And there is no such thing as Satan. 
Um, there's a book written by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. Anyone's familiar with it? And if you don't know the premise, Screwtape is a senior tempter, and he's writing letters to his nephew, Wormwood, and coaching him, basically, on how to successfully tempt humans in order that they wouldn't put their faith in Christ, but that they would walk away from their faith altogether. It's looking at the world from the devil's point of view, with Christ being the enemy, and documents all the possible ways in which Screwtape can teach his nephew how to successfully draw humans away from Christ. So Screwtape writes this to his nephew. But in the meantime, we must obey our orders. There you go. I don't think you'll have much difficulty in keeping the patient in the dark. The fact that devils are predominant, predominantly comic figures in the modern imagination will help you. If any faint suspicion of your existence begins to arise in his mind, suggest to him a picture of something in red tights. And persuade him that since he can't believe in that, it's an old textbook method of confusing them, he therefore cannot believe. So either we pretend that, or we just don't believe that Satan exists at all, or we pretend or think that things that are not, let's say, all the things that we don't, pretending that it's not him when it is actually him. That's what it is. So we do a lot of work in South Scottsdale. If, um, we spend a lot of time building relationships with our neighbors experiencing and just in the past couple weeks, um, we have been working and building relationships for almost three years. In the last four weeks, I've had more complaints from the neighbors than I ever had in three years. And I got a really angry phone call this week that I had to call back. And as I was preparing myself <laughs> emotionally to call back an angry person that has left a message, the Lord reminded me, like, she is not your enemy. This neighbor that's angry about this work of justice that's happening in your community, she is not the enemy. The real enemy is the real enemy. The one that seeks to kill and to destroy the good work of God, the good work of love and justice and relationship and equality that happens in our community. I had to repent of my anger towards my neighbors and ask the Lord to continue to reveal to me the real enemy that's at work in our communities. So that's the first one. We have to actually recognize that the enemy is at work and who the enemy actually is. So once we recognize our enemy and we recognize the schemes, how do we defend ourselves? This is the second crucial element. Now, um, Clint was really disappointed that I didn't show up today with my Roman army. <laughs> um, if you have spent any time in church at all, I'm sure you have spent many, many hours of your life coloring in like the different pieces of the armor and the sword. So I apologize that, um, that I didn't bring anything like that today. But in verses... Let's see. In the verses 13 and 14, Paul says to stand our ground, to stand, to stand firm. He says it over and over and over again. It reminds me of that game that you play where you face one another, and you're trying to like push each other to the point where you have to move your foot, and the goal is to keep your feet like sturdy and steady. 
That's what I keep thinking of when Paul keeps saying, stand, stand firm, stand your ground. So how, what do we employ in order to stand? What is this armor that Paul's talking about? Most people assume that because Paul was in prison and possibly chained to a guard, that this description of armor is basically an illustration, a visual illustration of people to grab, to understand and to grab hold of in the midst of Satan's attacks. And while that's true, it's probably more so a picture of God that wages war through his people. Back all the way in the Old Testament, in the, pro, in the book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah describes God in this way. He says, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. Tim Gottmas, who's a theologian, makes this statement in his book on Ephesians. Paul does not derive the armor of God from his pondering the armor of a Roman soldier, but from a consideration of the scriptures. Just as God waged war in the past to vindicate his name, to rescue his people, or to judge his people, so now God wages warfare against the powers through the church. Paul is drawing from the Old Testament. He's drawing from the words of the prophet that remind us that this is God's battle, and God's army, and God's armor. This armor was more than just a defense or a protection from the enemy. It was also a status symbol. It was a signifier of allegiance and identification. Just like today, there are certain pieces of military uniforms to distinguish rank or status. And this armor that Paul is encouraging us to wear is about our identity as followers of Jesus and our allegiance to him as Lord. Because this is really how we put up defenses against the evil one. By wearing these pieces of armor, we not only remind the enemy where our allegiances lie, we ourselves are reminded who we are and to whom we belong. So what are these pieces that Paul talks about? He talks about the belt of truth, the truth of God's story of redemption and reconciliation that we read all throughout Scripture. And when we read these stories, we're reminded of God's faithfulness to his people and his promises that are fulfilled in Christ. He talks about the breastplate of righteousness. Can you pull up that picture? The breastplate was the big deal in ancient times. It wasn't just a defense mechanism. It told the story that you believed about the world. So this is the breastplate of Augustus. It highlights his military victories. It communicates that the cosmic gods are on his side. So like Venus, Sun God, all those Greek gods that we all know about. And it communicates that he is the bringer of peace. That through his kingdom, him as the king, and through his kingdom, that will bring peace to the entire world. You can see why this breastplate is vitally important. It's vitally important to, it was vitally important then, and it's vitally important to us today. Because our defense against the devil is our identification with the righteousness of Christ. The breastplate that we wear tells the story of Christ's righteousness, that he has won the ultimate battle, that there are no other gods besides him, and that his life and his death and his resurrection is what ultimately 
when we put on this breastplate, we are combating the lies of the enemy that wants us to believe a totally different story about the world that we live in. Paul also talks about the feet that are fitted with the readiness that come from the gospel of peace. Here he's also, he goes back again to Isaiah, where Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. This is good news that proclaims peace, that brings good tidings, and proclaims salvation. It proclaims your God reigns. This gospel of peace comes from Christ. Augustus may have claimed that he was going to be the one that was bringing peace to the whole world, but in reality, if you know anything about his reign, it was full of injustice, it was full of chaos, destruction, and oppression. It was peace to some people, but it was not peace to the whole world. It wasn't true peace. This armor that we wear testifies to Christ as being the one who brings true peace. And we are called to be the people whose feet are ready to always proclaim the truth of Christ being our peace. The helmet of salvation. With the helmet of salvation, we are reminded of the assurance of our faith. That our head, which in those, those times also referred to our whole body, is protected from the schemes of the enemy by assuring us of the hope of our salvation that's found in Christ. The helmet reminds us that we are secure. It helps us to remain steady and calm in the midst of a battle, knowing that our faith in Christ is enough. When Satan begins to ask us the same questions he asked to Eve in the garden, is God really good? Does God really love me? The helmet of salvation reminds us that the victory has been won on the cross. That it's true. That the grace that we find in Christ is more than enough to save us. Our hope is secure because of Jesus. And the final two, the shield of faith and the, or the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit. We're going to put these together because they emphasize an important point about how we combat the schemes of the devil. These two have to do with the exercising of our faith. They're active. They're moving. The other things that Paul mentions are static and stationary. We put them on. But there's an active nature to the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. We interact and we engage with these parts of the armor. They produce in us alertness and readiness. There's both a defensive and an offensive posture to them. But they're still active. The shield of faith is alive. It's moving. It's active. It's always looking to be activated. It's always looking for an opportunity to get involved. It reminds me of those um, little sprinklers <laughs> that they use um, if you've been watching diving at all. If you've noticed, there's like little sprinklers that keep the water from becoming too still so that it mitigates injury. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Okay. <laughs> it's the same with the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit. We are actively drawing life from scripture, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, engaging and wrestling with these words until we're formed by them, until they become the sword by which we combat the lies of the enemy. The shield and the sword, they're constantly moving, we're constantly engaging with them so that, just like those divers, we don't hit, hit the water, they mitigate injury. Because they're always ready, they're always moving. This is the armor that Paul talks about. And the third crucial element is the posture with which we wear this armor. The posture with which we recognize the enemy. 
when Cole was playing baseball, it was kind of a joke in our family because he had this coach in his first year who had this like really deep southern accent. He's like, are y'all baseball ready? Get baseball ready! Like, if you play baseball, I get like really embarrass myself, but I think it's like this posture, right? It's like, and out with, and so he was constantly, like, he like had all these little, I think he was like nine at the time, and we were trying to get all these boys to be baseball ready. So if the ball comes to you, you can get it, you're ready for it. Lynn Kohik, who's a theologian, says the attitude is almost more important than the equipment. Paul concludes this section by talking about prayer. Because he knows our tendency to want to move and to act and to do something. And I'm an Enneagram 3, so I know how it is to want to achieve, to have the best armor, <laughs> to make all the plans to combat the ways of the enemy. But instead, Paul calls us to prayer, which brings humility. It shifts our dependence from ourselves, feeling like, okay, I gotta, gotta do something. It's my responsibility. I gotta be confident. I need to know all the doctrine and all the theology. I need to know all the scripture. I need to, I need to be always, be always trying to check off all the boxes. But we recognize prayer puts us in a posture where we need God. It's God's armor. It's God's battle. It brings alertness. Uh, over and over and over in the New Testament, they're talking about being alert and staying alert and being on our guard. Prayer opens our eyes. We see things that we may not have seen before. And Paul says in verse 18, he uses the word all four times. Just in that one verse. We had a professor in college that constantly would say, all means all, and all all means. And it's true here too. Paul says all occasions. Pray in all occasions, not just when you're feeling attacked. He's reminding us that we should pray, we should practice preemptive prayers or just develop a prayer life. If this is something that you struggle with, I'd encourage you to talk to Clint, to talk to the elders, grab a brother and sister in Christ, and commit yourselves to prayer so that you're ready on all occasions. All kinds of prayers and requests, not just asking for things or asking for protection but prayers of thanksgiving, prayers for others, prayers of adoration for who God is and the gift of salvation in Christ that's been given to us. Always, he says. That's not really at all, but everyone thinks it's basically at all. Never stopping constantly. Paul says in another letter to a community, pray continuously. And for all the saints, this is a community practice. This is not something that we do in isolation. We do not defeat the enemy on our own. We pray for each other. We pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. We're not individuals on our own personal Jesus islands. We're a community that bears each other's burdens. We hold each other up when we feel like we don't have the strength to stand like Paul encourages us to do. It's okay to 